Okay, we're, we're, we're live. We're live? We're recording. Okay, this is Spiel. Oh, start again, start again. <laughs> you totally lost my cadence. Hey, this is Spiel, the reading event for people who don't usually like reading events. I'm Joanna Baxter. And I'm Dana Mahana. And we are your Spielin' Good hosts. The two of us met in the writer's studio program at Simon Fraser University. We expected to become better writers, which we did, hopefully, and left with the huge added bonus of emerging as part of a whole community of writers. So Spiel is an inclusive platform for all genres with the goal of empowering and supporting local writers. Our format is short and sweet, five minutes max, because you know, Dana, a lot can happen in five minutes. This first episode features three writers from Spiel's fourth live event, recorded on May 30th, 2019, in Vancouver's historic Chinatown. The theme of the night? Close Encounters. Today, I was thinking of things to say up here instead of, I don't really know what to say, which is what I said last time. Uh, so I did a little bit of research today about May 30th, which is today's date, for those of you that don't have jobs. Um, and I discovered, unsurprisingly, that Spiel is taking place alongside uh, such auspicious events as the Cher concert and the... Uh, Cher! Woo! I believe! Um, and also game one of the NBA finals, so... Uh, and my son's 15th birthday. Sorry, Felix. We had a nice party this morning, so we're, we're good. But anyways, you know. we'll see. You'll see. I just don't think that it's a coincidence that all these events are happening together. I think they're on the same, same plane, you know? Um, but I also found out that May 30 has some historical significance. So... On this day in 1783, the first daily newspaper was published in the U.S. called the Pennsylvania Evening Post. Um, in 1848, the ice cream freezer was patented. Important stuff. Uh, the American Deep Space Pro blasted off to Mars on this day in 1971. And just four years later, CeeLo Green was born. <laughs> Our first reader is Kirsten Wiltshire. Kirsten was a first-time reader at the fourth Spiel event in May. She quit her boring daytime job this summer and has become a full-time dreamer, part-time realist, and a really, really part-time server. She enjoys all things comedy and spends her free time doing improv and writing sketches. This is fine. This is so fine. Okay, hello. I'll just jump right in. Uh, this is a bit of a period piece, if you will. Um, my first period was exhilarating. <laughs> like many experiences in my life, I was a little late to the party. In fact, I really gave up on the idea of even making it to the party. Rewind to grade three, a crooked-toothed, scrawny kid that looked and dressed like a boy with long hair, a real surfer type. All the girls in my class were rounded up and brought into a room to watch a video on the impending werewolf-like changes our bodies were going to go through. 
We were all given a small emergency period kit at the end with three different size pads. I brought that emergency kit with me everywhere I went for the next few years. <laughs> at first, it was in preparation for the fateful day, but as the years wore on, it took on a different purpose. It became a reminder of what could have been, a symbol, a symbol of an experience I was missing out on. High school came around, I switched my emergency kit into my new backpack. Over time, it faded deep into the secret pocket of my bag. I kept my ear to the ground as I aged. I made sure to log all the period jargon I heard so that I too could participate in topical period conversations. <laughs> it was late April of my grade 12 year, a gloomy Wednesday evening in the North Okanagan. I was at my regular dryland training for hockey, a team of young women running in circles around a small gym. I started out on my first lap, high knees, when I felt something inside of me scrape the walls of my abdomen. <laughs> I am dying, and I have also peed myself, I thought. I ran to the bathroom and pulled down my pants. I looked to the heavens. <laughs> this was my moment. I was truly alive. I yanked a fistful of toilet paper off the roll and shoved it into my pants. Four more times, I returned to the bathroom to change my softball of teepee. That evening, I stayed at my grandmother's house, and I told her my situation. She was two years shy of 80, so she told me not to get my hopes up on supplies. I watched as she rifled through her bathroom cabinets, pulling out various eye creams, loofahs, hair rollers, to make it to the cobwebbed back corners. She pulled out a stack of panty liners that appeared to be from the late 80s. I was afraid to take them, worried the supplies would disintegrate if I touched them. I had no choice but to take the antique stack. The material had changed over time and no longer had any give to it. Instead of molding itself to my underwear, my underwear took the shape of the flat pad. <laughs> A slightly absorbent piece of particle board in my pajamas. I awoke at 5 a.m. from a sleep I likened to the closest I have felt to actually being dead. My father and I listened to CBC Radio 1 on our way to my early morning hockey practice. I felt like a hero getting onto the ice. I stood in my net, having the time of my life, stopping pucks as my hockey pants filled with blood. I worried it was going to make its way to the white ice of my crease. But something in me shifted. I immediately started crying and left the ice. It was an abrupt and dramatic exit I have never been able to recreate. I spent most of the school day changing my liners. I thanked a god I used to believe in that I wore my brown cords. At first break, I was running low on my vintage liners when I remembered the emergency kit from all those years ago. I pulled it out with admiration for the little hopeful 11-year-old. I just had to make it to 6 p.m. That was when after-school yearbook would end. Then I could go home and tell my mother. She would understand. She would take care of me. I had done the math, the pads would get me just till the end of the day if I continued on my current pad changing trajectory and ran into no additional problems. It was 5 p.m. and everything was going according to schedule. I did the final change, the last pad of the journey. With the end in sight, I struck, struck up a conversation, my first one of the day, with my pal James. I began to laugh at everything he said. 
And every time I laughed, the muscles in my abdomen tensed and squeezed the blood from my body at an alarming rate. The more I laughed, the more I tested the constraints of my one-hour schedule. I was speeding up time. I was beating the clock. I was holding hands with the red devil. I had no more pads left, and I knew I had reached max capacity. I still had 20 minutes left. Maybe it was a thrill of youthful carelessness. Maybe it was a long-awaited joy of entering womanhood. Maybe it was the comfort of wearing brown corduroy pants. But I threw caution to the wind. I spent the last 20 minutes laughing away my uterine lining. <laughs> Class drew to an end. I waited until everyone left, tied my jacket around my pants with a huge smile, laughter fresh on my face, walked outside, and climbed into the passenger seat of my dad's truck in my hot, wet corduroy pants. <laughs> Next up, we have Maliv Kondeker. Maliv is currently studying critical and cultural practice at Emily Carr University of Art and Design. They are a mentor for Emily Carr Foundation's anthology and competed in a few Vancouver poetry slams back in the day. They are inspired by life writing as a way of exploring the confusing liminal spaces associated with such topics as migration, punk fashion, religion, cabbage, and digital technology. They are interested in using magical realism as a way to communicate the experience of alienation from dominant culture. Maliv also seeks to further explore the sonic and visual aspects of language to render redundant the difference between writer and artist. Most of all, they write for themselves because nothing else makes as much sense. I'm lying in mama's bed while she talks on the phone and I'm thinking about how I'm little and round and weak like those stubby-legged kittens, the rotund ones, but I'm like little and round and weak and then I could snuff it out by mistake with my left elbow while reaching, reaching for the remote kind of way. And that's when I feel a bell start ringing. It's a dull sound because it's deep inside my brain meat, my mozgi, like they say in that orange clockwork book when they get drunk on milk and see God in their mozgi. And like how Mama says when she tells me to use my head when I burn the onions, mozgi. All the pity regarding the grease stain of a kitten I am gets hit and dinged by the bell in my mozgi. And it keeps going despite my inner monologue. It's an urgent sound, but it's easy to miss, and I, I never want to think of myself as the kind of person to miss those kinds of things. The more I listen to its ding, 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 I get pulled inside. When I go inside, I'm covered in peace. But I don't look the way that I always do. That's no fun. The best part of inside is everything is just how you say it is. I'm tall and have a hooked nose, but more than usual, and a, a longish beard like in old picture books of evil men. And my eyes are always closed, but I walk in perfectly. It's best I don't describe the place too much. It's not important for anyone but me. Imagine whatever you like for a temple inside. And in there I sit, stroking my beard and bowing my nose and filling up with water and sinking into ear, air and, oh, it feels good to just sit inside. 
No one could snuff me out if they tried with all the elbows in the world. Someone visits me while I'm undulating in various elements in my temple inside, all while lying next to Mama. She's talking on the phone to Natasha about her birthday party, unaware of the inside of my mozke. They, who are visiting me in my mozke, they're covered in antlers, and they glow, and they come from above, like those prophecy posters say angels do, but they don't say anything. They just bow their noses and stroke their antlers, too. God, I wish they'd tell me how the world would end so I could write it out and make Xerox copies to put around downtown. But they're angels. I mean, they don't say anything. They just nod their noses and bow their antlers, and there are so many. And I get really mad, thinking, I'm not even thinking about how fun it would be to be a doomsayer anymore. And they aren't angels to me anymore. They're like, they're just like Bullwinkle with antlers times 10. <laughs> they're watching like I've fucked something up and they're too nice to say and they're singing praise at me while I vigorously nod my pointy beard and crooked nose in agreement. And I'm pissed off and the bell's still all ding, 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 ding. And again, nothing feels so good again. Mama's saying she can bring salad to the party and I'm all of a sudden thinking, my face feels so bare. True story. And finally, Ryan Hoban. Ryan is a teacher, writer, and former Maritimer. He is currently working on a book of collected short stories based on his childhood. He has been published in The Liar, The Tartan, and Geist magazine. He misses the Atlantic ferociously. For Marcel and Rich, the summer of 88 just wouldn't show. They'd push up and down the loading dock behind the Sobies and watch the rain come off the Atlantic until they got kicked out onto the slick streets. Later, the boys would diverge and wait for tomorrow. Marcel's parents were Acadian and Catholic. Strange rituals and ancient languages were spoken and practiced in that house. Rich came from the English part of town. Sometimes, histories matter. 88 had been a rough year. Danzig had released his first solo album, a huge departure from the Misfits. No longer did the dead-eyed Crimson Ghost adorn the album artwork. Danzig's Jersey punk roots had been replaced by metal and hard rock, and that just didn't sit right with the boys. They had no friends, no place to skateboard, and no money. So they watched the skies for a break in the routine. There was a tension. The ivy halls of a French Catholic school and the dusty beige of an English public school whispered serious threats of adulthood. Time was finite, intangible, and thick. The days and the beaches were empty. The weather broke almost suddenly, a tranquil, violent thing. It surprised them. The exotic license plates from Quebec, Maine, and New Hampshire glowed like mystical forces illuminated from carelessly parked sedans. Car seats melted in the heat. Small dogs were rescued, and it was tough to get a cone on the boardwalk. In short, it was business time. Due to the strange policies of a former mayor, and an economic downturn, the vendors of the boardwalk faded away, leaving vacancy, which was a blessing. The boys pulled behind them on a hibachi, sorry, <clears throat> the boys pulled behind them a hibachi on, one, on a skateboard and a cooler filled with raw hot dogs and buns, ketchup and mustard on the other. 
By 11 o'clock, they had their setup. A cardboard sign read, Chez Chaud, hot dog, one dollar. They waited in the heat, took turns swimming and cooking, but no one came. I don't get it. This time last year, Rich said, pushing a hot dog deep inside of him. Well, it's not last year. Okay, okay, Jesus, he replied. He pulled out a crumpled pack of players from behind his knee pad. The pads were old and oversized. They once belonged to his brother before the accident. His mom was a real hard ass about safety now. Still, the pads had a, uh, made a magnificent hiding place for smokes and joints and folded up bits of pornography that you could find underneath the bleachers after softball. Once, ages ago, Rich found an old clubhouse confidential magazine at the bottom of a public trash can, and for years he thought that that's what vagina smelled like. <laughs> the... <laughs> The day wore on like most do, but the mood didn't improve, and by supper time, the sales were meager. I'm going to go for a skate, Rich said, pulled in an Allen key from his pad and adjusted his hardware, making sure that they were to his taste. Fine, go. Rich walked walked towards the ramshackle boardwalk. The beach could be a dangerous place when the teens rolled in with their Bon Jovi haircuts and T-shirts, but he didn't mind. Marcel sat on his board in the sand, and he watched the waves. He thought complicated thoughts. Things would not be easy for him. He would lead a precarious bandana-filled life. (laughs) Rich pushed pushed fast down the boardwalk. He loved the smell of salt and cigarettes, the noise of bums and Frenchmen. He loved the silence of space. Towards the start of the beachfront, Rich noticed a large crowd. There were tables, chairs, laughing, drinking. A delirious scent of burnt onions and peppers had filled his bodies through various openings. He glided past the encampment watched dozens of diners eat tube meat. He didn't stop, he kept pushing faster and faster, trying to outrun what was behind while somehow holding on to it. It was past midnight when the first dog made contact. It was an unfamiliar damp thud. Marcel looked out from his bedroom window. There were raw hot dogs all over his lawn. Rich was sitting in the kiddie pool smoking a cigarette. Marcel slid in beside him, hot dog cart. Excuse me. Hot dog cart. Call this the Chris, spat Marcel. Rich shook his head. 11 o'clock, he said, then he left. Marcel closed his eyes and he fell asleep. The urban, the suburban wildlife rejoiced. The boys ate their hot dogs slowly. He watched the fat man named Eric toast up buns to a soundtrack of Skid Row and Aerosmith. Eric spoke softly as he stuffed wads of cash into his apron. He gave free hot dogs to some of the girls who laughed at him. The boys moved closer and further away, homogeneously, as, part of, as if part of the crowd. By three, sunburned and greasy, Eric headed home. Rich and Marcel followed the dats into a small house and watched Eric push the cart into a single-car garage. Then they left. They ate supper, helped with the dishes, and even went to bed early. They were suspiciously subdued that night. Rich's folks didn't notice. Eric was drinking a bud, eating a hot dog, laughing at the television. You could hear much music blaring, the power hour. After watching him for a while, the pair made their way into the garage. It was unlocked. Marcel went to the shelves at the back. He emptied the liquids onto the floor and onto the cart. He tore up rags and papers with old headlines and soaked them in substances and tucked them into areas. 
He turned on the propane tank under the cart and the gas on the grill. Then he joined Rich at the entrance. He smiled and he nudged Rich, who calmly reached behind his knee pads and pulled out a fresh book of red bird matches and passed them to Marcel. They looked at each other. Marcel struck the match, lit the box, and tossed it, then closed the door, got on his skateboard, and he skated away. Rich walked. There was no explosion or rush of air. There was nothing at all. Rich found Marcel at the water's edge. They took off their shoes and they let the cool water anoint their feet. They felt the salt cure their blisters and sores. They kicked at dead jellyfish and listened to the sirens go by. Van Halen had three top ten hits that summer and the heat was oppressive, record-breaking. It must have been that that kept Rich and Marcel away from the beach all summer long. It just had to have been. That's a wrap for episode one. Thanks to all our brave readers for sharing their work. Spiel wants you to be next on our stage. If you have a poem or tale you're ready to share, or if you just love to sit and listen, find us on Facebook and Instagram at Spiel underscore Vancouver for upcoming events, featured themes, and how to submit your work. I'm Joanna Baxter. And I'm Dana Mahana. Stay tuned for the next episode of Spiel, where we will feature another three writers from our series of live recorded events. Thanks for listening. Yeah.